Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm Daniel Gumby-Vreeland, joined as always by my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC heads back to Las Vegas this weekend after being on Fight Island for quite some time for its very first pay-per-view stateside this year, UFC 258. That's about between Kamara Usman and Gilbert Burns. We'll be breaking down that main event as well as two other of our favorite fights on that main card. It's part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays where we give you some underdogs and parlays we also think will be particularly profitable for your wallet this weekend. Plus, we were going to be interviewing two of the fighters, actually one of the fighters on the card and one of the fighters who was just recently removed from the card. First, I'll be talking to Jimmy Rivera, who is scheduled to fight Pedro Munoz. That fight has been pushed back, but we thought you might still enjoy that interview because he's talking about that fight with with Munoz, which, you know, is probably going to happen down the road. And he's actually talking about a possible move up to featherweight. So that's an interesting conversation you're going to want to tune in for. Plus, later on, we'll be talking with Gabe Green, who is actually still on the fight card. We're going to be talking to him about his debut, how it was very weird circumstances, and how he's really, really excited to get his second go in the UFC. But before we get to any of that, i got to remind you that this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast is brought to you by Jock Market. Look, we've all played daily fantasy sports and saw one of our guys put up an absolute dud of a first half. You almost wish you could just sell them off and start fresh in the second half. Well, now you can with Jock Market. Jock Market is the only daily fantasy sports app that allows you to buy and sell players as stock commodities while the games are going on. You start by bidding on the IPOs of players and Jock Market issues the shares to the highest bidders. And from there, you can buy and sell with other users as the prices of your players rise and fall with their performance. At the end of the night, Jock Market pays out based on their final performance and the number of shares you still got. Jock Market is live now for the NBA and the PGA, so head on over to the App Store or the Google Play Store and download Jock Market right now. Plus, when you sign up, make sure to use promo code TURTLE10 for a free $10 on your first deposit of 20 or more. Jock Market brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. Alright, and joining me now is Jimmy Rivera, who fights Pedro Munoz at UFC 258. So, Jimmy, I want to start by talking about this. It's a rematch, right? This is a fight that you have already had, you've already gone through once. And obviously, when the the UFC gives you that, there's got to be some sort of thought about the first matchup. What, What were your thoughts when the UFC said, hey, we would like you to fight Pedro Munoz again? Um, I mean... In my eyes, I guess it made sense climbing the rankings. At the same time, when I saw him fight Frankie, uh, his last fight, I actually thought he won. It was a close fight, but I actually thought he was the one that won in that five-round fight. So uh, I thought it was the next step, and it's, it's a great style. I mean, when I, got, when I fought him the second time, excuse me, when I fought him the first time, I didn't know what he was like style-wise. I saw a couple fights. I know he was just coming back from, like, a suspension or something like that. So knowing how he fights now and seeing him fight after, like, you know, the past couple fights, you know, I love this foul. He's someone that comes forward, likes to stay in the pocket, likes to exchange. I like that. I welcome that. So I'm looking forward to the fight stylistically. I love the fight. And, and I've, um, out of curiosity, you know, you said you didn't know too much about his style the first time. Did you still find that you really liked his style once you got used to it in the cage and it just took you a little while longer to get used to it in the cage? Um, the first time, I think the first time, uh, we fought, I had an awesome first round and then I kind of coasted in the second and the third, I was like, all right, I need, need to win. It was second was really close. And the third, I had to put it on. Um, I know training for that fight, we changed some stuff up that ultimately I didn't like afterwards, like cardio wise. So I went back to originally what I was, my cardio training. Um, so I knew when I go into that fight, I didn't feel in the best of shape compared to going into this fight. Obviously I feel really great. Um, but going into the fight, the first round, it was unbelievable. And 
you know, the second round, I let him edge in in the third round. I felt, I felt card a little bit, but I knew it was like, I'm in his hometown. I'm in Brazil. I need, I need, I need a swamp. I need to get out there. I need to do some stuff so I can get my hand raised. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm curious too, you, you mentioned in there that you feel like you're in great shape for this fight. You feel like things are going really well leading up to this fight. I know obviously the training camp got extended, right? Like you originally were supposed to fight January 30th. That fight got, that got moved back to January 20th. And now we're fighting in the middle of February. What has that been like for you? The fact that we keep moving around dates, that the training camp keeps getting shorter and longer and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it just got longer at the end of the time, at, at, at the end of it. So it just helped even more. I, I was, I was glad it was, you know, I was, we were able to get longer. I know the first time um, we were supposed to fight in November or December, Pedro needed some time. Then we, I had some personal things that I had to push it back a little bit, which uh, UFC let me do, which is great. So it's not like we pushed it back much because we were supposed to visually fight the 30th and end up matching everything in to like a week and a half in Abu Dhabi. So we, we got pushed back two weeks, if you think about it, because we were originally supposed to be the 30th. Now it's February 13th. So all in all, you know, the extra two weeks, I don't mind. It's not even that. It's just an extra week, if you think about it. Like, this is like my last hard training week. And then next week, you literally, like, it's all weight cut, and you're flying out. You're doing PR. You're doing your quarantine for COVID and all that. So that's really it. And, and, you know, you mentioned that fight was supposed to be in Abu Dhabi. Now we're in Vegas instead. I'm curious, is did you feel like you were missing out on the ability to fight at Fight Island? I've heard very different things about fighters and how they feel about possibly flying all the way to Abu Dhabi, dealing with the time change, fighting at four in the morning. What, what are sort of your thoughts on, on the location of the fight? Well, I did get to fight there in July for a, like a five-day notice uh, replacement or whatever it was to fight Cody Staten. Um, flying out there is a long flight because you have to go from Jersey to Vegas and then you literally go from Vegas to Abu Dhabi because that's the only airline that's flying you out there. But you literally pass Jersey on the way to Abu Dhabi. So we flew like actually like probably almost 20 hours. And then when we were out there, we had to stay on Eastern time. So I didn't really get messed up time-wise because I was literally going to bed like 9, 10 in the morning and waking up 6, 7 p.m. So we just stayed on that time since I was going to fight on that time. And I pretty much worked out the time we were supposed to fight around. So it ended up well. It, it, it was a little rocky, though. Like, they give you, like, two mats, not that big, and they bring you a treadmill if you need it. And I'm literally in the room working out on the treadmill. So that was, that was tough um, for two days. We couldn't leave our room for two days except for COVID tests we had to do. Um, but besides that, that was it. Yeah. And, and I, I wanted to ask you about that fight too, with Cody Stamey, because for the first time ever, and I know it was largely because it was on short notice, you, you fought at 145 pounds and, and Cody's 135 pounder, you're an 135 pounder. So I don't think anybody was thinking of it as a, a featherweight fight, but I was wondering how your body felt physically different in that fight, being that it was a weight class higher than you typically fight. <clears throat> I mean, um, I'm not looking past this fight, but there could be opportunity where I end up moving up. Uh, obviously, it depends on the outcome of this fight, and it also depends on, you know, sitting down with my management and my coaches and talking about it. But I think there's a strong possibility of me moving up to 45 um, just because I felt great in it. I mean, I know that I fought Cody Saban at 45, but I don't know if it's true or not. I think he still had to cut like 15, 20 pounds. And I, I don't try to put on size because I fight at 35. I had to cut like two pounds for the weight cut for 45. It was great. Like I wake, woke up, I was 2.1 over, did a salt bath, chilled out, chilled out and sat and just, you know, sweated it out. And I actually ended up losing three pounds and it was great. But, uh, I mean, it's also in another country, so it does help out. You don't have to lose as much. Because cutting weight in other countries, I've done it, and it's tough, really tough. I mean, like, when I went to Scotland, that was the last minute call. I had to cut weight, and I usually do a salt bath and then hit the sauna at the end if I need it, and there was no hot water. <laughs> <laughs> so that was tough. Brazil, Brazil was cool because those Brazilians get the sauna 
so hot that it's unbelievable. And I'm like, I don't even think I need that much time in here to cut the weight. Um, I, I literally had to go to the door, closer to the door in the sauna in Brazil because it was so freaking hot. Um, as I've been doing it, I, you know, the weight cut and all that, I finally got down pat where I kind of know what I need to do. And my uncle, my teammate Lewis just helped me and they get me through it. And I definitely want like a bitch, but it is the weight cut. It's the worst thing ever. I think, uh, if I could change one thing about the sport is that you would have to weigh in the day of. So this way these people wouldn't be cutting so much weight. And I think at the end of the day, we would just be healthier for the fighter. Well, and you said healthier for the fighter. Obviously, you hate doing it, and, and, and like those are big things too. But you, you know, you also mentioned that you felt better in the cage. What what aspect of your game did you feel is improved when you only have that those two or three pounds to lose rather than you know the the thirteen that you're, you're dropping? I feel like I feel strong stronger that. You know I mean, strong, strong. Sorry. I don't know if you curse or not. You certainly can. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel strong as hell. I feel way better. When I cut to 35, I'm, I, I literally cut as much fat as I can, and a lot of it comes down to muscle, and I have to get rid of some muscle to make it. Um, so that that's that's what sucks about it. So I, I I don't feel the same groove than I do when I'm, you know, if I, I'm walking around with my natural weight. So um, that kind of sucks. Um, yeah, honestly, you know, I don't, I, it just feel a lot stronger. I feel all around better. You know, when you start kind of like, I guess the best way you could say is like, you know, two people I have in mind are like Frankie Yeager and Aldo. Frankie, you saw him fight at 55. He's literally like the same height as me, maybe an shorter. Maybe he's like 5'3", and I'm 5'4". And I don't know how he fought at 155. That guy's like a warrior. But you would see his, like, like I always think of those great Maynard fights. He would go in there with, like, Rocky. He got beat up in the first round, and he came back. But if you think about it, Greg Maynard was cutting a lot of weight. Same thing with Aldo. When Aldo was fighting Peter Yan, he just, in the fourth and fifth round, he started dying out. Why? He's cutting a lot of weight. It's tough to cut a lot of weight and keep it going and keep that pace, you know? So I think when it comes down to it, you know, you have to know how much weight you're cutting. If you're cutting too much weight, it's going to kill you in the fourth and fifth round. You know, I know a couple of 35ers that are pretty big, and by that fourth and fifth round, they're feeling it. You know what I mean? When you're going for a title fight. Some of them, even in the third round, feeling it and they're dying out. And I'm curious, too, is that your thought process, too, with, with considering 145 pounds? Like, obviously, your goal is to be a champion. You know, you're, you're still, despite the fact that you've got it seemingly a million fights on your career, you're still only 31 years old, so you're not an old guy. Obviously, the goal is still to get that belt. Do you feel like it makes more logical sense at 145 pounds, both with the fact that you're strong, the fact that you don't have to deal with that as much anymore, and also, you know, like, not for anything, the two guys who are about to fight for the title are guys who you have recent losses to. Is that all pl sort of played into that decision as well, or the thought process that's currently going? Yeah, that definitely – so that's, like, the thing that, that like, goes in my mind. Like, obviously, when I fought Sterling, I just didn't show up. Jim Rivera didn't show up. When I fought Peter Yan, I was there. I fucked up in the end of the first and second round. I got – like, I was like, all right, I'm ahead. I beat him. I just coast like the 10, 15 seconds of the end of the round. And that's where I learned, uh, you know, valuable mistake. The hard way is if you coast, you're going to get caught. You got to fight to the bell. And uh, I learned that in that fight. But I can't say about the Sterling fight because I wasn't there. I had a bad weight cut. I didn't look myself. But if you watch me in the Yon fight, you know, you basically look like you watch the fight and you, you look closely. And I just made a miss and all that come with one shot of the first and the second and it wasn't like a shot where I went limp didn't know where I was at was stumbling back to the stool it was like a flash knockdown where it caught me I was like oh shit that was a good shot worked got out of it and just kept working from there so with that said I think I gave Peter Jan his best fight in the UFC till today I don't know what's going to happen with him Sterling I think it's going to be an interesting fight but I definitely gave him his best fight in the UFC for, for sure. I definitely agree with that, too. So uh, kind of in your mindset, too, being that you're the guy who gave him 
his best shot. And, and you've said, you know, you don't quite know what you want to do based on this Pedro Munoz fight. If you, you have a great performance, who knows what happens next. But if he it does so happen to come out on top of, of uh, Eldro when, when they do fight, do you feel like that is a better path to the title for you, knowing that you're the guy who, who tested him? Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. That's the big thing. I'm like, so I'm kind of like, I got this fight. I'm not looking past this fight. After this fight, obviously get the win. Then I'll kind of figure out and go from there and think about what I want to do. And I've also contemplated about just fighting on both weight classes, 35 and 45. You know, it's not like I'm dropping down to 25. So I even contemplate maybe doing both. It's just something that people have been, like recently some people have been asking about it. And we start talking about it. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't mind. I mean, the champ now is like probably two inches taller than me at 145, Alexander. So it's like, all right. I know he was a big guy and rugby player. He was used to be like 200 pounds. But <laughs> still, like, how much is he really cutting? Is he really that much bigger? I mean, I had teammates that fight at 45. And if they start really heavy, they usually, they usually don't like – I want to, I don't, not giving their weight away, but they don't start like 40 pounds overweight when they start a camp. You know what I mean? Maybe like 15, 20 pounds, if that. But like you start 30, 40 pounds out of camp, a new camp, you got six weeks, eight weeks, you got to cut all that weight. How, how are you going to feel in the fight, you know? Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you, whatever weight that might be. Now, before we go, I do got to ask you about the Pedro Munoz fight just one more time, because I like to try to get a prediction out of the fighters who, who talk to me. Do you feel like you could wager a prediction? How do you see this one going down? I think it's going to go to the decision. I think it's going to be a fucking war, and we're going to beat the shit out of each other. Well, we were looking forward to seeing that. And once again, this is Jimmy Rivera, who fights Pedro Munoz at UFC 258. Jimmy, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. No, anytime, man. I appreciate it. And that interview with Jimmy Rivera is brought to you by Covert Cap. Are you sick of having to decide between a rash guard that looks like a magic eye and a Yakuza back tattoo? Maybe you're like me and you don't like showing up to grappling tournaments looking like a knockoff superhero. Well, if you are like me, then you should check out Covert Cap. Covert Cap brings you minimalist, no-gi wear for both BJJ and MMA. Their graphics are sharp, clean, and not filled with a bunch of frills. Check out their whole line on their Instagram at Covert Cap Brand or on their website, thecovertcat.com. Designed in Australia with a low fixed shipping rate worldwide, it doesn't matter where you live, you're going to want to get yourself some Covert Cat. Now, once again, I am Daniel Gumby Vreeland. Joining me now is my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, let's start here. Where does that Corey Sanhagen knockout fit in all-time knockouts, and is it the surefire knockout of the year? Uh, Gumby, this is so painful that you're going to start out asking me such a tough question. Yes, it's the KO of the year. It's in the all-time. The timing was just perfect. The fact that the person he hit went limp before he even hit the ground. I mean, it was violent. It was a thing of beauty from a mixed martial arts perspective. I don't even like saying that it was Frankie Edgar that was on the other (laughs) end of the knee. I don't even like rewatching it. Frankie, you're still a legend to me. It's still real to me, damn it. And Frankie, now in his last six fights, has gotten KO'd or TKO'd violently in half of them. Uh, Just tough to watch from the Frankie Edgar perspective, but if it was someone who was kind of like an asshole or something, (laughs) like I wish it was Dylan Dennis. If it was Dylan Dennis, it's the KO of all time. What do you think? I think it's probably up there for one of the KOs of all time. I will say, from... On so many levels, I think it's way better than the Jorge Masvidal, uh, Ben Askren knee. Because while it's not faster, it's not much slower either. It was 28 seconds. In addition to that, it wasn't on a guy who you just assumed was going to sprint across the cage and shoot a double leg. Uh, you know, like Frankie Edgar is like varied in his approach. And also, like, I, I don't know if you how you feel about when he hit it. I'm not sure Frankie was shooting a takedown. I actually think... He just drew Frankie into the right kind of strike or missing the right kind of thing or, you know, like his fakes or the way he was moving was just perfect and it drew Frankie right to that move. And for that reason, you know, like that it wasn't a guy who was just obviously going to shoot a double leg as soon as I got close to him. Like, I actually think it's way more impressive than what Masvidal did. 
You know, you might be right on that. I'd have to think about it, probably watch both of them back-to-back like 50 times in a row. Uh, I do think, yeah, I, I might actually lean that you might be right on that, but I'll tell you what's more impressive than anything. It's our next segment, Fights, Dogs, Parlays for UFC 258. It's our favorite segment on the show. We're going to break down a couple of the fights. We're going to give you a parlay to play, and we're going to give you our dog of the week. But before we get to it, Gumby, one may wonder if any fine company sponsors this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. Absolutely. Fight Stocks and Parlays is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, or jiu-jitsu, it doesn't matter. Log your training sessions with their app and meet your goals. You can also do cool things like log your weigh-ins, training sessions, and your competitions, and so much more. Head on over and download the Maroon Social app wherever it is you download apps. All right, we will start at the main event, and it is a b- b- banger of a main event. I feel like Brendan Schaub saying that and stuttering at the same time, but, I mean, there's no other way to call it but a banger of a main event. We have Gil Burns, the Jiu-Jitsu ace, who's on a six-fight win streak, finally getting that title shot. If you do recall, he was supposed to get it last summer. Uh, I believe it was injury if it wasn't COVID. COVID. It was COVID. Uh, it was it COVID? Was COVID. Okay, yeah. Gilbert COVID. got COVID right as he was about to get on the plane for Fight Island. Uh, and then, of course, Jorge Masvidal stepped in and got absolutely cooked by Kamaru Usman. But that being said, let's talk about Gilbert Burns. Uh, since losing to Dan Hooker via KO back in July of 2018, he's reeled off wins against OAM, Mike Davis, uh, Konchenko, Gunnar Nelson, a TKO over fellow jiu-jitsu ace Damian Maya. And absolutely sauce Tyron Woodley winning by unanimous decision. Uh, really impressive uh, uh, string of wins for Gilbert Burns, but he's going against the champ and a dominant uh, wrestler and a very high output striker in Kamara Usman. Uh, he's never lost in the UFC going back the last few years. Uh, unanimous decision win over Damian Maya. Unanimous decision win over RDA, two future Hall of Famers. Uh, unanimous decision win over the champ, Tyron Woodley. TKO'd Colby Covington in a tremendous fight. And then absolutely cooked Jorge Masvidal, as I said. What an impressive performance. Uh, just these last five fights alone, you have you know probably three guys who could end up in the UFC Hall of Fame, if not four, if not five even. Uh, If you want to bet on this fight, which we assume you do, Usman, a minus 270 favorite, very strong. You can get Gil Burns a plus 230. Who you taking here, and I'm assuming it's Usman, let's also hear a path to victory for Gilbert Burns, if that is indeed the case. So I'm going to say you're right. If you put a gun to my head and I absolutely positively have to make a pick in, you know, my life is on stake and I have to pick the right fighter. I'm taking Kamar Usman, but let me tell you something. I really hate these odds on him. I'm not interested in playing him anywhere near 270. And I actually think there's a lot of value on Gilbert Burns at plus 230, you know, over two to one underdog here, almost two and a half to one underdog here. And the reason why is I think it depends on the approach of Kamara Usman here. Because the path to victory here for Gilbert Burns, I think, probably is in stunning, you know, Kamara Usman on the feet or hitting him hard. Because he does hit like a truck. You know, like Gilbert Burns hits really hard. Um, Even if you go back to when he was sucking down all that weight to lightweight, he's got some some big KO power in him. And, And I would just say that, like, you know, the interesting part is I, I actually think Kamara Usman could probably take him down and grind him out for for enough of the fight to win the rounds and to stay safe against Burns' jiu-jitsu off of Burns' back. But the thing is, is Kamara Usman, when he fights a guy whose jiu-jitsu he's worried about, he doesn't even tempt it, right? Like, he never went to the ground once with Damian Maya. And Damian Maya went to the ground a couple of times with Gilbert Burns, and Gilbert Burns outgrappled him for for a large portion of that fight. And some of that was because he was on top. But, like, it's important to note that Gilbert Burns' jiu-jitsu is so damn good. So if Kamara Usman decides he doesn't want to play that game, I think the path to victory for Kamara Usman becomes a little bit more narrow, right? Like, the stand-up battle in this fight 
is not as lopsided as the odds would say. And if that's truly the type of fight he's looking for, I could definitely see Gilbert Burns either out striking him, you know, going with, you know, you mentioned Usman's got high output. He definitely does, but it takes two to tango. And I actually think Gilbert Burns doesn't have bad either if he, he decides to engage in that type of fight. And like I said, the aforementioned power, I could certainly see him stunning them and subbing them. So it, it's interesting to me that the odds are where they are. I'm going with Usman with the gun to your head pick. But as far as the odds lean, I'm either playing the dog here or I'm staying away. What was that phrase you just hit us with? Gunning them and stunning them? Sweet. What was it? Gunning them and sub or uh, stunning them and subbing them. <laughs> I, I fucking love it. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, for me, I think a path to victory, uh, for Gilbert Burns. And I, I too am picking Usman. I agree with you completely on what you said, though, the value pick of Gilbert Burns. But just straight up, for me, it's going to be Usman here. Um, for one thing, you know, Usman's not going to go to the ground with him. Even if he were to uh, gun him or stun him and get him on the ground, let's say in a knockdown, I could see uh, Usman being very careful about rushing in, even, let's say, hitting his knees to the mat to try to pass guard or anything like that. He's too smart a fighter for that. This is going to be largely contested on the feet. And I have to tell you, Usman's output, much like Colby, and Colby's output I think might even be better than Usman's, but Usman's output is much more than Gilbert Burns. You know, I'm looking at uh, UFCstats.com. Usman strikes landed per minute. 450, 4.50 to Burns 3.15. Striking accuracy, Usman 53%, uh, Gilbert Burns 46%. So, you know, to me, what this becomes about is Usman taking three out of five rounds, if not four out of five rounds, just on the striking output game and landing more. Burns path to victory then, for me, it's some sort of scramble. Can he stun Usman and take his back even from like a standing position, like a backpack style that we've seen Damian Maya do up against the fence? I just don't see this hitting the ground. So for all those reasons, it's Usman. I don't know if you have anything else you want to say, or should we just move on to the next fight? No, I kind of agree with you too. Yeah. Like a, a scramble, is probably what he needs. And, and you're right. I think probably the path to creating a scramble is pretty narrow for him. I, I think if he's going to have a tough time uh, getting to a position where, where he likes. Alexa Grasso is a minus 145 favorite to Macy Barber, a plus 125 dog. So very close odds here. Macy Barber coming off a unanimous decision loss to Roxanne Matafari back in January. Uh, so quick turnaround for her. Before that, though, uh, beat Hannah Cyphers, J.J. Aldrich, Jillian Robertson, had a really nice streak of fights coming off of Dana White's Contender Series. Actually, TKO'd her first three real opponents after Dana White's Contender Series and then just ran into ye old buzzsaw Roxanne Matafari. So maybe just a bump in the road for an up-and-coming fighter, but Alexa Grasso will have something to say about that. She's coming off a unanimous decision win over Ji Yun Kim, lost to Carla Esparza before that, Beat Carolina, Carolina Kowalkovitz before that. So two and one in her last three. And if you want to peel it back even further, uh, she lost to Tatiana Suarez via rear naked choke. So no shame in that. But beat Randa Marcos before that via split decision. So you could even say she's three and two in her last five. Uh, and, you know, thus the favorite here, who you take them. So I'm going to go with Alexa Grasso, and I'm going to go with her for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, you mentioned those losses to Tatiana Suarez and Carla Esparza. I really think she was ill-fit for the 115-pound division. She kept cutting a lot of weight to get her, her down there, and, and I think you could see it in her grappling defense that she was exhausted when she fought those kinds of fights. I think we saw in her, her debut at 125 pounds when she beat Yi Jian Kim, that she turned a corner. She looked much better. And I think in this fight against Macy Barber, you're going to see, first of all, we, we don't know what Macy Barber looks like coming off the ACL surgery. You know, the, the loss to Roxanne Modafari, largely blamed on that. But like, 
at the same time, I don't necessarily think that that's all of why she lost. I think in, in general, she doesn't do a really great job of bullying opponents who have physical strength and physical gifts, which, uh, not that Roxanne Modafari has physical gifts, but she definitely has physical strength. So I actually think in this fight, if she tries to box with Alexa Grasso, Grasso's going to light her up. We're going to see her try to shoot late, and and I'm not sure necessarily how I feel about her doing that with, you know, like I said, coming off of ACL surgery. Grasso's definitely the more polished boxer. As long as she stays away from the grappling here, she should win pretty easily. Uh, I agree with you, so I won't add anything more to the fray. I will just move on to Kelvin Gastelum, a minus 230 favorite against Ian Heinish, a plus 190 dog, and I think... This is a very interesting matchup, though. I know it favors Gastelum, and I'm probably right there with Gastelum, uh, you know, winning this one. Uh, they're both at very interesting junctures in their career. Let's start with Gastelum. He lost to Chris Weidman via, via arm triangle choke back in July of 2017. Feels like many lifetimes ago. Then he came back with a huge KO uh, punch over Michael Bisping in China and then a split decision win over Jacare Salza. The win over one foot out the door Bisping and split decision win over Jacare Salza earned him an interim title shot against a guy by the name of Israel Adesanya, and it was a tremendous fight. Adesanya could not put Gastelum away. Gastelum actually put Adesanya in more peril than maybe anyone we've seen up to this point. But then he lost via split decision to Darren Till, and then another loss to Jack Hermanson via heel hook. That was back in July of 2020. So he's now riding a three-fight losing streak, but it's to Ida Sonia, Darren Till, Jack Hermanson. You could almost say the Hermanson loss was a little fluky because it was a heel hook. Uh, and then the split decision loss to Darren Till. You know, these losses aren't as bad as they might seem, but you don't want to lose four in a row, and you certainly don't want to lose four in a row Ian Heinish, who's one and two in his last three. Heinish has had a very interesting career when you think about it. He debuts Dana White's Contender Series with a big KO, beats Cesar Ferrara, beats Antonio Carlos Jr. He's 2-0 and for real in the UFC. Life is good. But then they give him Derek Brunson. He loses via unanimous decision. Okay, let's try to get a win back against Omari Akhmedov. Nope, loses via unanimous decision. So now he's 2-2 two and two in the UFC, and comes back in a huge way, though, with the TKO over Gerald Mearshart to take his uh, lifetime career in the UFC to 3-2, and two, and now another tough test in Gastelum. Probably doesn't want to lose here. Uh, who are you taking? I think I'm taking Calvin Gastelum. You're right. It's so hard to tell, though, right, because like that – you go back through Calvin Gastelum's last five, five fights and you ask me what we've learned, and I honestly can't tell you anything, right? Like, he lost to the very best in the division. He beat guys who are seemingly on their way out the door and don't look good anymore, right? Like, he, he beat old Jacare Souza as part of his decline. He beat Michael Bisping, who was coming on a quick turnaround just trying to get one more fight in. And, and those those wins do not look good, even in retrospect. And the losses, while they're losses are against, you know, the very, very best of the division. So it's so hard to gauge where he's at right now. But I will say this. If you look at any of those fights he had with any of those people, you're right. He does damage on the feet, right? Like, he damaged Chris Weidman. He had Weidman wobbly in that fight before Weidman came back with the arm triangle. He hit Idesanya, and he hit Idesanya hard. Darren Till fight, it was a little bit passive, uh, and obviously he didn't get a chance to get started against uh, Jack Hermanson. That was over before it began. But the thing about him is just he hits hard, and when he goes for it, he can slug with you. And with the exception of Derek Brunson, I don't really see anybody on Ian Heinish's resume that fits that bill, right? Like, does Gerald Mearshart hit hard, or does Antonio Carlos Jr. hit hard, or, you know, does, you know, Cesar Ferreira hit hard? Not really. And so I'm not really worried about in the stand-up. I will say my one hesitation here in picking Gastelum is Heine shoots a lot of takedowns, and he gets a lot of takedowns. So, I mean, like, his his takedown percentage ultimately is pretty low. He's getting about one out of every five, but he throws them out there so constantly. I could see him wearing out Calvin Gastelum, who hasn't had the best gas tank in the past, but I actually think Gastelum is going to hit him with the hands early enough that that's going to change uh, the, the complexion of this fight here. 
All right, fair enough. Uh, let's move then to our dog of the week. It's Jim Miller, a favorite of our show. He's plus 215 over Bobby Green. Jim Miller debuted in the UFC in 2008, has had 4 billion fights since then. He's in the 40 range. Uh, coming off a unanimous decision loss to Vince Pichel, but we like him here as our dog of the week. Break it down. So I have to tell you that uh, Jeff Fox convinced me that uh, Jim Miller is actually the one to win this fight. Jeff Fox from MMA-Manifesto.com. Because I was looking back and I was like, Jim Miller ain't going to win this fight because Jim Miller can't take down Bobby Green and I don't expect him to be able to box with Bobby Green. But then you look back and the dude hits takedowns. Like, I couldn't believe how many takedowns he has in some of his earlier fights taking down guys that, like, you'd be very surprised that he took down, you know, Jim Miller took down Dan Hooker, you know, Dan, Jim Miller took down Dustin Poirier, Jim Miller took down Tiago Alves four freaking times. Like the guy shoots takedowns and he gets them. And even against a very physical guy like Vince Pichel, he took Vince Pichel down twice. So, I mean, like, I really like his ability to take the fight to the ground. And it's not like Bobby Green is impervious to being taken down. He got taken down twice by Tiago Moises in his last fight. He got taken by, by down by Alan Patrick. He got taken down three times by Clay Guida. He's been taken down in all five of his last five fights. So, with that being said, how many times does it take for Jim Miller to be on top of you for you to be out of this fight? Especially if you're going to try to scramble with him. Man, I, I, I think I just love the idea here of Jim Miller being able to use a little bit of his top game. And at, at plus 215, you have to love the idea of getting 2-1 to one money on Jim Miller in a fight that, you know, got put together on like a week's notice. Who knows what shape either of them are in, so you might as well take the dog here. Hey, I love what you're laying out here, and here's why. We take such pride in the advice that we dole out here because this is your money. This is our fans' money, and people rely on us to give them these little tips and tricks. And in this case, you know, the views expressed for this dog of the week is not ours. Direct your hate to Jeff Fox. Manifesto. <laughs> it ain't on us if we fuck you up with that pick. It's all on Jeff Fox. I repeat, Jeff Fox. It's his pick, not ours. All right. Let's move then to the parlay to play. It's Mallory Martin, minus 155, and Ricky Simon, minus 250. So two favorites at minus 155 and minus 250, but play them together, and you get a plus 130. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Put it together. It's magic. Break down this parlay. Well, first of all, I would say Ricky Simon is my favorite pick on this card. Um, in his last fight, granted, he fought a short-notice replacement, making his UFC debut. His wrestling looks better than ever. I'm really impressed with the the way that his game has changed. And where he's fighting Brian Kelleher, a guy who typically, you know, while I love Brian Kelleher, I like the way he stands up. I, I, I like a lot of his striking. I actually like his sub skills based on what he did to Ode Osborne. I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen when he gets taken down this many times. And I think that that's ultimately what's going to happen. It's also problematic here that this fight is taking place at featherweight because of the short notice uh, nature of it, which means the much bulkier, much more physically strong Simon is not going to have to suck the weight, which makes him even more dangerous here against the guy who probably doesn't cut as much weight as him. I also like Mallory Martin here against Pollyanna Viana. I can't believe these odds are this close. Mallory Martin kind of gets a bad rap because her UFC debut looks so bad against Vierna Jandaroba, who is an amazing grappler. And really the beauty of Mallory Martin is that she has great takedowns and she has great wrestling, which she showed in her second fight. She's fighting Pollyanna Viana here, who I, I think has got good jujitsu, but I think she's got good jujitsu when she's in good positions. I don't expect her to be able to sub Mallory Martin off her back. And ultimately, it's Mallory Martin's decision if it goes to the ground. So she could also, if she sees a striking advantage, stay there. And those odds are close enough that when you're boosting into a parlay, those ones really help out. So I, I like Mallory Martin's wrestling paired with Ricky Simon's wrestling as well and uh, getting that plus 130 return. Boom. That rounds out our edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays for UFC, UFC 256. We sure hope you enjoy it. Follow along on Twitter, at TopTurtleMMA. We'll be live tweeting throughout the show. Let us know if we did you right. Let us know if we did you dirty with these picks. 
Speaking of rounding things out, though, Gumby, let's round out the show. Where are we going to next? And we're going to round out the show today by transitioning to our interview with Gabe Green. He's going to break down his upcoming fight with Philip Rowe, as well as talking about making his debut on short notice and getting ready during the COVID era. So we're going to get to that interview for you right now. And joining me today is Gabe Green, who fights Philip Rowe at UFC 258. So, Gabe, I want to start here. You know, you took a fight on short notice to get into the UFC. You fought Daniel Rodriguez, and we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I noticed heading into this fight, you're also fighting at that same 170 pounds, which I I know on the regional circuit you fought mostly at lightweight. Is this a permanent move for you? Did you decide to move up to welterweight? Yeah, um, I felt comfortable there, and uh, I fought D-Rod, and, you know, he's a 170-pounder, and he was knocking out some 170-pounders, and, uh, I mean, he couldn't knock me out. He was throwing everything he could at me, and um, I was taking it, so uh, I I felt really good. I felt like, you know, my chin was good, and um, I felt like I had the power to, you know, hurt D-Rod, too, so 155 has always been... um, like I made it every time. I've never missed weight, but it, it's always been a bit of a struggle. So I think 170 is uh, where my my home is going to be for the foreseeable future. I, I like that, and and I know you mentioned a couple of different things in there, but but is the most noticeable difference to you that the ability to take a punch? You feel like you know, like your body's less depleted when somebody like even when somebody as big as Daniel Rodriguez hits you. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I couldn't take a punch at 155, but my body just all around feels it. Like it's just it's just firing on all cylinders when I'm at 170 for sure. Well, that's good to hear. Now I'm curious too, and and how you think about that and why you previously really loved 55. Was it the the thought that you know you just have to get as small as you can, and that's kind of the mentality that people go in with? Is does it have to do with your height? Because I know you're only 5'10", which you know isn't a, a super tall guy for welterweight. Uh, what, what was sort of your thoughts always on going down to, to 155? I mean, uh, when I was uh, training before, I did all my amateurs at 170. And uh, it was just, 170 was, I didn't cut any weight for 170. It just That's just what, like, I just basically showed up. It was same-day weigh-ins um, for amateur events. So it wasn't anything crazy. I'd just, you know, weigh in and then go fight. And then, um, you know, just we get an extra day when we're fighting pros. So that we're just like, no, well, you think you can make 155? And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can do it. I never really had to cut weight when I'm um, doing 170 or anything before, like I was saying. So yeah, I mean, I, I can make 155, but you know, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's the best spot for you. Absolutely. And I think more and more people are realizing that now as well. Now I'm curious, you mentioned the Andy career in there too, as well, because You've got a little bit more of the more extensive amateur careers out of most of the guys in the UFC. I'm curious, was that by design? Did you plan on spending that much time in amateurs? Did you know you were always going to go pro? Uh, I mean, I walked into my coach's gym, and two months later, he signed me up for my amateur fight, and I didn't have, like, any real experience before that it was my first time training martial arts and so I had a fight and I liked it and then like a month or two months after that I had another one and two months after that I had another one and then it just kind of took off from there and I I knew fighting is all I want ever you know I wanted to do (laughs) once I discovered like what it was you know uh but as far as why uh I, I did six fights as an amateur and uh then it just no one really wanted to fight me anymore so my coach was like uh you want to go pro and i was like sure let's do it well that that makes a lot of sense now I, i'm gonna take you back a little bit there because you said you you took a fight about a month into to training martial arts for the first time I, I have to imagine you had some kind of athletic background other than just martial you know the, a month of martial arts under your belt right before before you took on a, a full-on mma fight yeah, I um, I mean, I played I played football in in high school, and uh, that was uh, my dad showed me how to throw a one two in the backyard, you know, growing up because he didn't want us to, like just in case anything happened, he wanted us to be able to defend ourselves, and uh, so we always had a uh, like a bag in the backyard like readily available to us, so I would you know go outside and hit the hit the bag and stuff, but it wasn't 
any any like real uh instruction besides you know watching mike tyson highlights on youtube so <laughs> yeah it, i mean that was it but um my family my family's pretty they're pretty athletic people i'm honestly as uh, weird as it sounds being the professional fighter in the family i'm probably like the least athletic out of my siblings <laughs> pretty funny well and, and how many siblings do you got then what what are what are the athletic stories behind them then uh well i have a i have an older brother a little brother and a little sister uh, they were all they all did track and field and, and uh played football well, my sister didn't play football but they were all track and field stars uh my little brother's probably the most athletic out of all of us but he just did track track and field in high school and um i think the relay team like won state or something and he didn't he just was like eh, and he just like hung up the shoes after that but my <laughs> older brother went on to play uh college football and then um he played uh, overseas in Germany uh, professionally over there too. So he's he's uh, we have, if you were to look at all of us lined up as kids, you'd be like, oh, that's going to be the guy who's going to be the pro. It definitely wasn't me, especially because I was a little chunky. <laughs> that's funny, and and you know, I, I want to go back to what you said about Mike Tyson highlights too. Is, is that somebody who who you always looked up to? Is is that somebody who you sort of aspired to to be as you entered the fight world? Yeah, it was it was it was weird because my two favorite fighters growing up, uh, and they, they were boxers. I wasn't even really familiar with, you know, every other aspect of martial arts besides boxing. We would always watch boxing on TV, but it was Mike Tyson and and Ali. I was like infatuated with infatuated with both of them, and uh, I was like, how do I want to fight like both of them? But they're two like extremely different fighters, so I don't know. I mean, my style is what my style is, but that's two guys that I wanted to be. Well, and I was going to ask you, too, your style, and don't get me wrong, you're an incredible puncher. You you had a great bout with, with Daniel Rodriguez where you traded some leather with him. But if you look back at your record, you've got nine wins and six of them come by submission. So for a guy who grew up loving boxing, what what made you so apt in the, the submission game? You know what? It's just I'm an opportunist. You know, I'm going to go out there and try to knock the guy out. But if he gives me his neck, I'm going to take it. You know, it's it's the win is the win. So that's just what everyone kept on doing to me when I was uh, in my fights prior to the UFC. Everyone just kept on just leaving their necks out there. So I was just like, all right, I'm just going to snatch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that certainly worked for quite a long time. Now, I, I do want to talk about your UFC debut before we get out of this fight with, with Philip Rowe, too, because... Leading into this fight, you actually had a really long layoff, which I, I don't think a lot of people realize. You spent almost two years outside of the cage, and then, it's a big surprise, you get the call not to just fight again, but to fight in the UFC. Can, can you take us through a little bit of the emotions behind that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was crazy, because I uh, messed up my hand, and um, I had been fighting with the messed up shoulder that I wasn't even aware was as messed up as it was until I went and got it checked out. But... uh yeah, I had to take the two years off, and then um, I think the day after they put the cast on my hand because uh, I broke a couple bones in it, uh, the UFC called me and was like, hey, um, you want to come fight in um, in November over here in Colorado or something like that? And that was in 2018, and I was like, no, I can't. So that, you know, that hurt, and then all that's all I was thinking was like, oh, man, you know, like, UFC wants me, and then I had my, my, my hands in the cast, and then my shoulder, The I had some tears in my labrum, and the doctor was like, oh, you're going to have to take off a long time to fix that stuff. It's pretty bad. So then I was just sitting there like, damn it, you know, finally, that's the call you want, the UFC to call you. And uh, I just I couldn't say yes because of injury. Uh, and then they called me actually like uh, a couple months later to be a last minute fill in for another fight, but that was just like I was still in like a sling for my shoulder surgery after I was like, dang it, guys, why don't you call me when you know, I can fight? <laughs> and then, um, but then yeah, sure enough, um, I think I I went back to training. I think I was training for like three weeks solid, but then Corona happened and then shut down my gym. So then. I wasn't even, you know, doing any team practices or nothing. I just, like I said, the punching bag in my backyard is still there. So I just, you know, would go for a run and get my bag in the backyard, you know, just trying to stay in shape. And then the UFC called me and even though I was rusty as shit and like, you know, my timing was gone, at least physically my body was working. So I was like, I'm not going to tell you no again. I'm definitely going this time. And then, yeah, it's just like, let's go. Even though 
yeah, I trained like three weeks in like two years for that fight. And even those three weeks were three months prior to actually going out there because that's how long I'd, I'd seen my coach. When I saw my coach, uh, when my coach picked me up to drive out there, it was the first time I'd seen him in like three months because of COVID. So, yeah, it was, it was a crazy, crazy situation. But, you know, I was like, you know what? UFC called me. I said no a bunch of times. My body's ready. I'm going to go out there and do what I got, like what I can. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to try my best to win. Unfortunately, I didn't, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and, and I think the performance, especially given the circumstances, uh, exceeded expectations there. And you obviously learned something about yourself. You prefer 170 to 155. Now, I'm curious as to how you feel about going into this fight. Because, like you said, there, there was that big, long layoff. Now you've got a little bit more a little bit more uh, experience in the cage recently. You get a fight. You get a full training camp. What are people going to see different for Gabe Green against Philip Rowe than they did against D-Rod? Um, it, it's almost – I'm just going to be like a whole other fighter, honestly. They, they, they might not even recognize me. I'm, uh, I'm completely dialed in right now, and I'm just, you know, I'm ready to rock. I'm going to go out there and do what I know what I can do what I know I can, you know, and that's finished the fight. If you look at my record, I hardly, hardly go to the judges. Uh, and, uh, I'm gonna go back to that, that little thing that I used to do before and not need them. Uh, well, we're certainly looking forward to it. And fans, once again, this is Gabe Green who fights Philip Rowe at UFC 258. Gabe, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for, uh, thank you for having me and talking to me. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We certainly couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also couldn't do what we do without the mothership, CagesidePress.com, or any of our sponsors, Maroon Social, Jock Market, or The Covert Cat. And lastly, we want to remind you guys to visit us on Twitter, at Top Turtle MMA, and on Instagram, at Top Turtle MMA as well. Got all kinds of stuff going up there all the time, so make sure to check out those two locations. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby-Vreeland, he's Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we'll catch you then.